This is HPR episode 2488 entitled, Psychology of Love. It is hosted by first-time host RSR and is about 13 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is, a look at some of the neuroscience and psychology behind love. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. is about the neuroscience and the psychology behind love. I'm RSR. I had a few different podcast episode ideas in my mind, but uh, when I saw that uh, Valentine's Day was approaching, I thought I'll do a romantic interlude to HPR. To give you a bit of a background, my main degree is in electronics engineering and uh, I also have a diploma in psychological counseling and guidance. Mainly, I consider myself an interested amateur in psychology and uh, neuroscience. By the way, my accent is pretty much transparent to me, so if there are particular uh, phrases or words that I pronounce too differently, then uh, yeah, it's okay to let me know. Please let me know. Now, let's dive into the neuroscience of love. First, a bit of a disclaimer. Sometimes uh, people tend to think that describing the chemical reactions behind love means that you're just reducing love to a chemical reaction like love is just a chemical reaction uh, that's only as true as saying a poem is just ink on paper or uh, your child is just a bunch of subatomic particles it sounds kind of profound but really it's uh, basically meaningless in real life unless you reduce every other part of the universe to such simplistic views. With that said, the main neurochemicals involved in love are dopamine and uh, oxytocin and vasopressin, which are similar to each other. First, dopamine. Dopamine is uh, commonly associated with reward and pleasure. You might have come across it in the context of addiction and it plays a major role there. But dopamine's main function is to let you know that you have done something evolutionarily good or that it thinks is good. Those little surges of pleasure you get from solving a puzzle or fixing a bug, they come mostly from dopamine. And in the context of romantic love, research has found that the dopamine-rich areas of the brain, the reward centers of the brain, light up and show activity when you're reminded of your loved one through a photo, through their voice. It seems that simply their photo or a recollection of their memory is enough to give you a little surge of pleasure to make you feel pleased to think about them. And from an evolutionary perspective, that makes sense because your brain wants to be reproduced. It wants you to pass on your genes And with humans, your partner, your loved one, is the way brain gets to do that. 
dopamine is also the reason that uh, romantic love especially young love often feels like an addiction like any other behavior that's uh, regulated by dopamine this part of it also has the potential for addiction a kind of addiction we'll come back to that the other part the other neurochemical that's majorly involved in romantic love is oxytocin oxytocin again has a popular name it's sometimes called the cuddle hormone or uh, the bonding hormone these kind of names can be helpful but uh, they can also be misleading if you're a programmer think of the if keyword if uh, people started calling the if keyword the error and exception checking keyword if you think about it that kind of makes sense because many many uses of the if keyword if and else are for error checking and some basic exception handling but uh, you know that fundamentally they are very different things and similar to that the neurochemicals and neurotransmitters in the brain have multiple functions they are basic elements in a very complex and very interactive process so these only give you a vague generalized idea so oxytocin in particular gets its name the bonding hormone because among other things it's involved in for example trust empathy generosity and generally bonding with someone oxytocin basically gives your brain a way to record this person is important to me on the flip side of it it also encourages in group mentality it increases the kind of us versus them mentality and it makes you think or care less about people outside your group it increases the in group bonding but it decreases out group empathy but in relation to romantic love there has been a finding that uh, oxytocin apparently increases your fidelity to your partner it's been found that uh, a small dose of oxytocin makes committed partners more distant and less interested in people of the opposite sex whereas the same dose of oxytocin didn't do anything with single people so apparently our brain deep inside knows about fidelity and regulates for it these and other parts of brain chemistry also impact and explain some of our uh, normal romantic interactions and uh, issues for example when you're infatuated with someone that kind of romantic interaction is mostly based on dopamine it's based on this internal reward of pleasure and excitement and that's what gets your heart going but it also turns out that that kind of passionate infatuated love also leads to decrease in the areas of your brain that are related to mentalizing or creating a theory of mind this mentalizing is what lets you understand that other people's thoughts and emotions are distinct from yours and can go in different directions because these parts of the brain are less active in infatuation on the one hand it gets the person feeling like them and their partner are united as the same person but on the flip side of it it also makes it more difficult for an infatuated young person to make sense of and reconcile with the differences between them and their partner a little bit of infatuation keeps the relationship passionate and exciting but allowing that to dominate your romantic feelings leads you to not really understanding the other person's mind and truly creating a mature relationship on the other end of it there has also been some research into so called selfless love 
the kind of love practiced in some kinds of meditation. The study showed that this kind of selfless love does not activate the reward centers of the brain as much as romantic love does and so does not involve that dopamine rush and that feeling of addiction. So when you see a couple have been together for 30 or 40 years and still in love with each other, most probably they have discovered this kind of selfless love for each other while also maintaining a little bit of passion through that little bit of infatuation. The secret is in finding that right mixture between infatuation and mentalizing and selfless love. Okay, so far we have remained within the realm of rigorous scientific studies. Now we are going to enter some territory where uh, things are less rigorously studied, less rigorously known, but things that have been very useful for many relationships. The first is something called the five love languages. The five different ways in which people express love and therefore the ways in which they expect to receive love. The ways in which they understand love. The concept is from a book by Gary Chapman and uh, he divides the languages of love into five categories. They are all expressions of love but for different people different languages speak more loudly. So the languages he mentions are time, words, gifts, actions and physical touch. So basically you can express your love to someone through spending a lot of time with them, giving them caring and affirmative words, doing acts of service that make them more comfortable, that makes their lives better, through physical intimacy like hugs and cuddles and of course sex, or by giving them valuable gifts. The idea is that if you are a type of person who sees giving your time to someone as your most valuable act of love and if your partner expresses and receives love by giving and receiving gifts then if you don't understand this difference in your languages of love neither of your affection for each other will be properly communicated when people understand and adjust for the other person's language of love that leads to better relationship and a more long-lived relationship that's one aspect of communication in a relationship. There's another axis along which people have divided communication in a relationship. Again, based on experience rather than rigorous studies, this is the ask culture versus the guess culture. This can be a culture in terms of actual nationalities, different cultures, or in terms of simply different upbringings in different families, the family cultures. But in either case, the guest culture is one based on empathy and anticipating the other person's needs. In a guest culture, minor things that you want from the other person that make your life more comfortable are left unsaid because the expectation is that the other person will understand and act on it based on empathy and mutual understanding. So a guest culture is where you don't ask the other person for minor favors that you would like to be done but you only ask them for things that you really need get done and the other things are supposed to get done automatically. In contrast to that, the ask culture is where you are allowed and encouraged to ask for anything that you prefer the other person does regardless of its importance 
and regardless of how obvious that need already is. So in an ask culture, anything can be asked for and importantly, saying no to things is regularly expected. To an ask person, a no is just part of a regular interaction and doesn't mean much. But to a guest person who already makes the request only when it's of sufficient importance, a no is a big deal. There are advantages and disadvantages to both sides. For example, the ask culture is obviously clearer in communication, whereas the guest culture has more chance of miscommunication. On the other hand, people in guest cultures often feel more closer and more intimate because they have anticipated the other person's needs instead of needing words while an ask person might go to the extreme of not giving up their seat for a pregnant woman and then saying why didn't you ask for it so both cultures work in different ways for different people but there can be and are clashes when they both get together and try to make a relationship work if they don't understand that communication works differently for the other person there's a lot of chance of misunderstanding and unnecessary conflicts this ask versus guest culture idea has also been very useful for uh, many relationships and uh, as far as i can tell it seems to have originated on the internet from a post on meta filter and then been picked up by so many others neither this culture divide nor those languages of love are uh, precise and unique people generally are made up of a mixture of these different kinds of communication just with one or two of those as their primary most effective means of communicating and expressing love so that's about it for today i hope that uh, world went tour through neuroscience and psychology and counseling and finally to internet posts was overall useful and maybe even contained a couple of things that uh, you might use for this valentines day wish you all a very happy valentines day and uh, talk to you later bye bye you've been listening to hacker public radio at hackerpublicradio.org we are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday monday through friday Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.